And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today we are going to explore a topic that I'm sure all of you are familiar with or at least been exposed to in the various different criminal caper movies that you've seen, and that is a safecracker. Well, you know, we watch those movies they put together, you know, a renegade band of misfits who don't seem to fit together. Uh, and then, you know, through the course of the movie, we find out that they're able to steal the jewels and maybe learn a little something about themselves in the process. Well, to get those jewels, to get that piece of art or whatever is behind that safe, you got to get into that safe. Well, how do you get into a safer vault? You got to have a safe cracker. Well, today I'm going to talk with the greatest safe cracker in the world. Now, luckily, he doesn't operate on the unethical side. He operates with the law, with the consent of the owner of the safer vault. His name is Dave McComey, and he's got lots of stories, and he's written a great book called Safe Cracker, the chronicle of the coolest job in the world. And there are lots of great, incredible stories in this. There is a lot that goes into this, and there are a lot of pitfalls and a lot of crazy stories of what you will find inside of those cracked vaults, and we're going to get into all of them today. So first of all, Dave McComey, thank you so much for being on the show today. So your name, do you like to go by Dave McComey? I mean, do you like Dave? Do you like, um, are you Dave McOpen Sesame? I mean, is that, is that, has <laughs> anyone good. ever given you that name? Because it's kind of what you do, Dave. I mean, you are, uh, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're the best safe cracker in the world uh, is that true, or am I just giving you kind of a sensationalist title? Truthfully, there is no such thing as a best safecracker. Um, just any more than there would be a best lawyer or a best doctor or a best podcaster. Although Joe Rogan might disagree. But, you know. Joe Rogan, I disagree. I disagree, <laughs> Dave. I am, I am the greatest podcaster that's ever lived. Uh, but you're very humble. I like that, Dave. I like that it's about true, you. true, though. But, you know, you have a lot of skills that, you know, I think make you not only extraordinarily good at your job as a safecracker, but also just an interesting human being. Because let's talk about some of the things. The, let's talk about some of the non-safe cracking stuff first. Because okay. sure. um, I was, so we're, we're now just to give people an idea. We're ta- I just read your new book, which is called uh, the Chronicle. What is it? The Safe Cracker Safe Cracker Chronicle of the Coolest Job in the World. Did I get that right? You did. Now that is it's a fantastic book, but you learn quite a few things about you. Not the least of which is. As square as as your job, as normal as your job may seem, you started out as a guitar player for Leon Smith. Uh, Frank is Frankie Leon Smith. Now, I was looking this up. Is it Frankie Leon Smith or is it Leon Smith? I was trying to find examples of his work, uh, but there were several different types. So tell me about this career, what you did, uh, and what it was like, uh, and what the groupies were like. Well, when I was in my 20s, I got bored with safes and vaults and wanted to play lead guitar in a band. So I responded to an ad in the newspaper, showed up at a tavern out in Gresham, Oregon, and got hired on the spot that night by Leon Smith. Uh, 
and stayed with him for five years. He was a good guy, good singer, great front man. We had a, a wonderful time. Uh, just coincidentally, it recently came to my attention that in 1983 or four, somebody was in the crowd at one of our dances with a video camera, and it's on YouTube. The sound quality is absolutely abysmal. But yeah, there is a video. You know, you can see me when I'm looking like I'm about 18 years old playing guitar. Do you? Ha- you got to send that to me, Dave. I got to put that on the website. Do you have it? Oh, sure. Yeah. You got it. All right. The last rodeo band is all you'd need to put in. There's only one video, and it's very poor quality. Crack me up to see it. <laughs> I got to put that up there because I was looking at him. So I, I again, I couldn't tell. Is this Frankie Leon Smith? Is it, are they the same guy? Are they two different musicians? Um, I don't know Frankie Leon Smith. I just knew Leon Smith. Okay. So I could be totally wrong here. I may be putting up a bad example. But from what I understand from my research, he pioneered the the putting the IZ in the middle of words and for slang, like pizzles, kind of the stuff that a lot of rappers have taken up today, Snoop Dogg, uh, Dr. Dre. Uh, some of the guys from my youth, you know, for shizzle, that all came out of that. And if it's the same Leon Smith... He did that, and that is monumental uh, if, as far as slang goes. If I'm wrong, then I'm just spreading misinformation, and I'm like every other American out there, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an easy mistake to make. Yeah, different guy. Different guy. Uh, oh, okay, so I'm totally guy. wrong but on Leon this. Leon Smith that I played guitar for, Yeah, he was. Uh, his claim to fame was he was a Willie Nelson impersonator, and the best one in the world. The guy was virtually indistinguishable vocally from Willie Nelson. And visually, he could put on a hell of a costume and look a lot like him. And that was that was his. He, Leon later, after our band broke up, he went down to Vegas and he uh, emceed the Legends show there at one of the casinos for 15, 20 years. He was the Willie Nelson impersonator and he emceed the show down there. Now he's retired. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, I don't know if you're an Andy Kaufman fan, but I remember watching Andy Kaufman's impressions of Elvis Presley, and they were so spot on that when you see someone, especially if they don't look like Elvis and they sound exactly like him, it's a little off-putting. But if this guy looks like Willie Nelson, it sounds like him. Those those types of things are just amazing to me. Impressionists, people who can mimic, uh, I mean, it's just a fantastic, I mean, it's what makes us human. You know, I mean, this is the stuff that separates primates from the rest of the animal kingdom and to monetize it and do it professionally. I love that. Uh, weird little side test, but it does go into one of the other things that you're a master of, and that is philosophy, because you actually have a master's degree in philosophy. Now, is that as the as kind of the world as a safe, you know, you got to crack life, you know, in some weird ways. Is that kind of how these two go together? Is there is there a correlation? Is safe cracking a metaphor for really uh, figuring out this wacky world that is our existence? <laughs> that was very well said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah. The, both you. philosophy and safe cracking deal with puzzles. Philosophy is all about trying to figure out life's most perplexing puzzles, you know, the deepest, most fundamental, foundational questions a person can ask. All of those questions are in philosophy. Uh, in safe cracking, it's a physical puzzle, not an abstract or a mental puzzle. It's a physical puzzle, and you've got to figure it out and get the darn thing open. Uh, I love it. They're both they're flip sides of the same coin. And anybody who's just struck you know, with awe and wonder at the world that person is probably a decent candidate to enjoy safe cracking, but they probably never were in a position to give it a chance. I was in a position to give it a chance and got lucky. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's there's weird ver- there, there's a lot of philosophy that kind of is threaded throughout your book. You know, not only um, with just kind of your approach to life, your approach to safe cracking in it in and of itself, but just some of the interesting ideas, the way you kind of view existence. I mean, I think there's even a small little part about near death experiences. Uh, I was just I, actually listening to one of my favorite shows, uh, and they were interviewing Bob Bigelow, uh, Robert Bigelow, who um, is now starting a whole foundation, really looking into near death experiences. Is there an existence after life? Uh, and and right. there's some interesting there's some interesting through lines in your book about this. So what I'm I'm saying is your book isn't just about the crazy stories about you cracking safes. Uh, it's about you cracking life. And I just found that really interesting. And, and it just seems like a cool hobby that you have that you've been able to use and um, as a guiding force, really. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, it was just one of those things that during the writing of the book, my father became ill and passed away. So I had those thoughts on the brain during the time when I was writing the book. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have been expressed. But yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, that. it's 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 something that I think you know, as you get to a certain age and as you see things around you, it's something that I think we all naturally kind of get drawn to. And you know, speaking of of your father, your your mother and father owned a Dairy Queen. Uh, this I found really interesting in your book because when I was a kid, I, I was from a small town and the only real fast food establishment in town was a Dairy Queen. As a matter of fact, my sister worked at that Dairy Queen. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, when I was in high school that a McDonald's came in and made it different. But there were there weren't even really a lot of small like mom and pop shops people would go to. But Dairy Queen is the place we always went. I love blizzards. I think it's arguably humanity's greatest contribution to the world. Uh, in the book, you get chicken strips, which I feel like you can get anywhere, Dave. Uh, so what a what was it like to have parents that owned a Dairy Queen where you could go to at any point? And B, why chicken strips over blizzards? You got to answer that question. Ah, we'll take the last question first. Not over blizzards. I love them both. I would often get a blizzard to compliment the chicken strips, but I promise you, you've not had chicken strips the way my mother makes them. She was doing them (laughs) like uh, Chick-fil-A before Chick-fil-A was. And as counterintuitive as this is, Mm-hmm. She makes a little side dish of gravy to dip the chicken strips in, mm-hmm. and I don't even like gravy. And gravy's an ugly word, but I love the gravy on the chicken strips. It's it's awesome. Really, yeah. I grew up with honey on chicken strips, which uh, is something that I don't think a lot of people do. You know, when I had chicken nuggets as a kid, you know, everyone had McDonald's back when I was a kid. It was always the little honey packets. I loved that, and I always thought that that was a little weird. So maybe the gravy and, no. and the honey are there. You know, they're they're two sides of this this fringe coin. You and I are on the fringe when it comes to dressing our chicken, Dave. Well, tell me that you put honey on one half and barbecue sauce on the other. That's a great combo. Oh, that is that I no no I have not done that. That's an interesting combination. See, so you're a master. You? Yeah, <laughs> this is what happens when you grow up. Uh, you're able to try all of these concoctions. You know, I only really had one crack at it. I only had six nuggets when I was a kid. So you know, I, I didn't get too experimental for fear of missing out on one of them. Uh, but I like what you're doing there. But there's a lot to you, Dave, and not the least of which are your safe cracking exploits. So let's get into this because this is utterly fascinating to me. You know, not only the ability to do this, but even that this is a profession. And not only is it a profession, you are extraordinarily in demand. And when I say safe cracking, 
so that people understand exactly what I'm saying. It is how it sounds. You've, you, there are people with gigantic safes, those big metal containers that have combination locks, things that are designed to keep people out. Your job is to get into them, and you are amazing at it. So how did you get into this line of work? I, you know, we've talked about philosophy being a guiding force, how they're similar to safe cracking, but that could not have been, not at the early age, that could not have been the reason why you wanted to do this. So what, what, what got you into this line of work? Well, as a kid uh, in the late 1960s, I got drawn into this television show called It Takes a Thief, where Robert mm -hmm. Wagner starred as Alexander Mundy, a fictional jewel thief who was quite good at picking locks and cracking safes. He got rescued from prison by the, uh, the SIA, uh, the CIA, but they called mm -hmm. him the SIA in the mm -hmm. show. Yeah. <laughs> and his job for them was to burgle safes and get state secrets from other countries and what have you. I was transfixed by this character, and just coincidentally, our next-door neighbor lady either lost her purse or it was stolen. I don't recall any, any longer what happened there. A locksmith had to come out and pick her locks on the car in the house and make keys to both. And when that van pulled up, accurate locksmith, my eyes were pie plates, and out I went. Really? I introduced myself to him. Had he been a, a you know, a a gruff, mean old guy, and had he just waved me away and dismissed me, I probably never would have ended up in this business, but he was as nice as could be, he invited me into the van, nothing weird, invited me into the van, showed me how the... <laughs> you got to preface well, it to that days, nowadays, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Crazy days. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took the locks apart and showed me how they worked and all that, but the greatest thing was uh, watching him on the at the car and in the house picking the locks. He picked them both. The car was an old Ford, and the, the house was a, just a regular quick setter wiser lock. And they're fairly easy to pick, or they were back then, and he made quick work, and I was just mesmerized. He showed me how the tumblers worked and how the, the pick went into the lock and raised each tumbler to the uh, what we call the shear line. It was wonderful. He invited me, invited me to his shop, and one thing led to another, and I ended up working for him for many years. Wow. I, I, here's what I love about that story. Number one, it is amazing how much pop culture, television, movies really inspire people to do different things. I mean, I think we kind of underestimate that. Uh, and, and I think it's important. I mean, yeah, I, I have a master's degree. You have a master's degree in philosophy. I have a master's degree in television for some ridiculous reason. Yeah. Arguably the two most useless degrees <laughs> when someone's raking one through ten. No offense to you or to myself. Uh, but it's these things that inspire us. And I think that is really important um, because, you know, when, when you're when you're looking at the, the 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 things that are fun and the things that are really exciting and you're watching them visually and you're seeing these people crack into the safe. You use the word burgle, which is arguably one of my favorite words as well, <laughs> especially on screen. And I want you to kind of help me out with this. When people pick locks, it seems to be, especially in movies and television, you pull out a hairpin, you twist it left and right, two or three seconds later, you're inside of the lock, you can get through any deadbolt, anything like that. They make it look super easy on television. There is no way it is that easy in real life, or is it? Sometimes it is. Really? There are low end, yeah, there are low-end saves from the Pacific Rim where our standard technique, I shouldn't probably say this, but our standard technique... <laughs> is to simply drop the safe and turn the handle. That's it. <laughs> it's a two-second job. Yeah. And of course, there are other safes or other vaults that are a nightmare, and there are no magic tricks right. in. 
there it spans the gamut from the two second opening to the two day monstrosity. Yeah, you know, sometimes wow. that happens as well. So you can so you can you can in some ways pick a lock that quickly. That is fascinating to me because it looks. I mean, I like that you say you drop it and you turn the handle. I mean, you know, you and I had some technical difficulties getting this show aboard. What I did is I restarted my computer, which is the technical equivalent of dropping it uh, and, and getting it and turning the handle, and it works, Dave. Sometimes you know Occam's razor. You know what I mean? Yeah, very good. You know, obviously you were inspired by It Takes a Thief, but this didn't end your your um, your connection to lockpicks and safe crackers on film and television did not end there. Because there's this funny chapter in your book where you talk about uh, the Italian job and how you're a, a consultant for uh, Charlize Theron. When I was reading the book, I was thinking to myself, oh, that must have been such a cool job. Oh, you worked as a consultant on the Italian job. That must have been great. And then I find out. You're daydreaming about it. You didn't. You missed your opportunity uh, to be a consultant on the on the on the Italian job. I'm actually surprised that they don't bring you into film and television more. Um, but you know, the fact that it's filling your daydreams, obviously, you know, this must be something that you would like to do. Have you looked into that? Well, thirty thirty three years ago, I was a TA for a Burt Reynolds film called Breaking In, mm-hmm. and it was a hoot. the The problem was. I guess I was about 30 at the time, and I looked like I was a kid. And they also had brought in a a really nice older guy who had spent 12 years in the Oregon State Penitentiary for burglary. Wow. But he didn't know anything at all about safes. But he was about the age I am now, you know, in his mid-60s, and he looked like he had some life experience, and I looked like a kid. (laughs) So they weren't very, um, I don't know what would be the word, they weren't very impressed. They they would often take his word uh, about what safecrackers would do over mine uh, to to my intense objections. I would, I was (laughs) a little frustrated a few times, but yeah, it was fine. Here's the thing, The, the people who crack safes illegally, the truth is they don't know anything about safes. They just have learned a few crude methods that work on some low-end containers. They are not safe experts. There are no safe experts in prison, save for maybe one or two of the guys on my side of the railroad tracks that have gone bad. There are a couple of those, but other than that, no. Everybody in prison for busting into a safe or trying to doesn't have any idea what they're doing. Well, I love that because that kind of destroys the myth of all the, you know, the movies that we look at. You know, we're coming up on on Christmas. Bad Santa is, you know, one of my favorite movies. And Billy Bob Thornton plays a safe cracker. You know, obviously he's inebriated for most of the movie. Um, but, you know, he goes through all of the, you know, he's he checks all the boxes. He's supposed to be a master safe cracker. But that, you know, you're shattering the, the, the image here of, you know, people who are professional safe crackers. They're dressed in suits and they, you know, or, or in a. In a you know cat burglar outfit, sneak into you know museums and steal fine art. You're saying that that doesn't happen. Now let's talk about the, obviously you know we mentioned up top that what you do, your profession is taking something you're not supposed to get into, and you're gaining access to that. So what what do you do? What are when you when you come to a safe? Uh, what what are your first checkpoints there? Like, what do you, what are you looking for right off the bat um, to get into this? Uh, what well, like what are the steps? Obviously, you know, you, turning the handle is number one, and blowing it open with dynamite is number ten on your list. But what's in between those two? Well, we first have to establish what the problem is. 
what's the situation that we're running into? And there really are only four. Either the safe has a lost combination. Somebody has bought it on Craigslist or Grandpa died and he's the only one that had the combination. In other words, it has a, a working combination lock. No one knows what the numbers are. And then we have the second scenario where, well, we do have the numbers, but they don't work. Something has gone wrong. It's a malfunction of some sort. And the safecracker's job is to figure out what the malfunction is and overcome it. And we try to do that without drilling whenever possible. And the third scenario is when a burglar has tried first. They come in with hammers and All right. oxyacetylene torches and a variety of bludgeoning tools, and they make a mess. Right. They knock the hinges off, they break the dial off, smash the handle, do all sorts of stupid things that just lock the safe up even tighter than it was originally. So the safe cracker will have to overcome whatever damage has been done to get the safe open. And the fourth and final category is uh, user error. Somebody has forgotten <laughs> the proper dialing rotation, yeah, or yeah. they have forgotten to put the key in all the way, or they, or as one of the stories in the book elucidates, they have lost or overwound their time lock. Yeah, that also can lead to a lockout. So those are the four scenarios that we run into: lost combo, malfunction, burglary, user error. And once we know which of those we're in, we can then plot an effective strategy for getting the safe open. That's how it works, really. Got it. Okay, so that's the basics. And I should mention here, you know, I should have mentioned this much earlier, um, but you have a perfect record of getting into saves. Now, that's come into jeopardy a few times, but you have a perfect record. Now, as of the writing of the book, that's true. Is that still true today? Yes. <laughs> it would it, it would all right it would always it would always be true i, I can't imagine ever not getting in uh, it's just unfathomable now there hey you're right there have been some very very close calls but i don't know i'm like i feel like tom brady i'm just super lucky things go my way <laughs> when my back is against the wall and yeah. i'm down 25 to 3 and there's only three minutes left in the third quarter you know i don't worry about it we're gonna win the game it was twenty-eight to three. Twenty-eight to three was the famous game, but you were very close on that. They're gonna. I thought you're channeling uh, the. Oh, you're the, right. Yeah, oh it was yeah. twenty-eight to three. The in the end of the third. Yeah, that's <laughs> the famous. And I would also say that Tom Brady would consider himself much better, more good than lucky. Um, but it luck also helps. You know that does doesn't hurt. Oh sure. Now there is one. You know there. Is, I don't want to bring up a sore subject here, but I found this to be very fascinating on the subject of your record. You do bring up mm. this interesting story about the Bumblebee Cannery Safe, oh. where your your yeah. your, your reputation was to, was tarnished <laughs> in, in some ways, um, unjustly. But you know, according to you know, to, according to them, in some news reports, you couldn't crack into that safe, uh, which that is it's untrue when you listen to the whole story i actually the story kind of annoyed me because you you came there to crack the safe uh it's an old safe from the bumblebee cannery days i think they were shutting down uh the the um shutting down the factory they're putting in condos so they found this old safe they brought you in to fix it now what you didn't know is that all they really wanted was publicity for not only the safe the uncrackable safe but also uh for the condos this guy was building but they ambushed you with the reporter you ended up on the news and all this stuff that's those tactics really annoyed me on this um and I'm giving you an opportunity to set your name straight because I think you were unjustly, uh, you know, you were, your good name was besmirched and I'd like you to, uh, to speak to it. Well, the, it, the whole thing was, was fun. 
Uh, Floyd was just a, a wonderful guy. He, he was. He put up a stumbling block in the way, but he was really fun to have all those exchanges with, and the, the job itself was a blast. Uh, but it's right. The, the, the whole scenario uh, looked at the other way. Yeah, it wasn't so fun. It was one of those things where uh, when you're in my position and you something doesn't go quite right and you want there not to be a story about it, well, there ends up being a huge story about it. When, when, when I walked away on that spring day and got in my car and drove home, my hope was that he would come to his senses and invite me back to open the safe. And I drew a little tiny hole and open it up. Yeah. Like I've done to dozens and dozens and dozens of those exact make and model hall safes before. Now I should pause you really quickly. Cause the hang, the, the, the kind of the, the hang up here was that you, they didn't want you to drill the safe because it was a historical artifact and they wanted you basically to manipulate it and get it open in other ways. And that was really the hang up. So with you, with your hands tied, your options are limited with a safe, especially an antique safe. Is that right? Well, I should have been able to manipulate it open. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, I, that's fair. Yeah. I just, I got rattled. The truth is, you know, no one ever wants to admit this, but I got rattled on that job and I couldn't manipulate worth a darn um, that particular day. I was hoping to go back and drill it open with a, a little bitty drill bit. I had shown him photographs of the exact same make and model being done lots and lots of times. You, you can't see the repair when it's done, uh, but uh, in any event, I went away and a bunch of people came back and attacked it. And one of them, uh, one of my buddies actually, got it open. So hat tip to to Tom over in Longview for doing what I failed at. He, he dialed <laughs> it open. Now that's fair. Now I will say you compared yourself to Tom Brady. Um, and you, you know, you're saying, oh, it's okay. My friend did it. I'm telling you, if Peyton Manning had won the Super Bowl instead of Tom Brady, he wouldn't be tipping his cap. He would be, you know, he'd be a little upset about this. Um, I don't consider this well, a loss, but it had to at least have been like, ah, Floyd. Yeah, that's true. But bear in mind, uh, Tom Brady has lost, what, four Super Bowls. So he's not three. undefeated. I think it's three. Three, okay. Yeah, two to Eli Manning, one to Nick, uh, to, uh, Nick, Folk, uh, Nick Foles. Um, yeah, I mean, that's true. He doesn't have a perfect record. I mean, that, that's for sure. Uh, but I'm saying he, he would, it drives him. I mean, look, he's doing it. He's doing something that no one else has done. And I think, I feel like you have this same passion. Obviously, you know, you're a very soft-spoken guy, uh, but I feel like something drives you to be the best or you wouldn't be as good at your job as you are. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, you said luck. There's this really kind of interesting part in your book where, you know, it kind of like Biff Tannen in Back to the Future 2, you talk <laughs> about being the luckiest person alive. And it's interesting because you kind of break down the different types of luck you've encountered. I'm going to encapsulate them here really quickly. So there's sure. three types of luck. Um, you know, you've had a one in a million shot at opening a safe and you've gotten it open. You put an example in your book where you're drilling a bank vault. Um, you were out of ideas. You dug, you know, you drilled an exploratory hole to try to figure out what was going on with this thing. Um, and by divine intervention, that was the exact spot where you needed to drill and you got the thing open. I mean, that's, that's lucky. I mean, that, that's for sure. Um, you said dumb luck where you made a mis you, where you make a mistake and it actually turns out better than if you had done it correctly. Um, and one of the parts, well, this is actually a great story in your book where you say, um, you made a measurement on a vault door and what you didn't realize is that the vault, the way the mechanical, the, the mechanics on the inside of the vault work, they were actually on, you 
you measured for the left side. They were actually on the right side. Um, but because this particular this particular door was built in reverse, they actually were on the original left side. So all of your drill points, despite the fact that they should have been completely wrong, actually were exactly perfect, uh, and you got right into the lock. And the third one is a buzzer beater. Um, you uh, there's this great story where you're trying to you're trying to get into a, a vault. You've got like exactly an hour. And at 59 minutes, you crack 59 minutes and 59 seconds, you crack open the lock before a whole team, a detonation team is coming in to blow a hole in the wall. Uh, these are pretty exciting stories, lots of different types of luck. Why do you think you're the luckiest guy? Because in some ways, some people think you make your own luck and, you know, you happen to be in the right place at the right time. So why do you think you're the luckiest person and, and, and why such a focus on luck? Well, the, the, the metaphysical question there, I don't have the foggiest clue about uh, the nature of luck and why good luck has followed me my entire life in the field. I, I don't know. I have no explanation for it. But there is nothing else. When, when you make a mistake mm -hmm. and you draw a hole in the absolute wrong place and it ends up being through nothing other than sheer luck, the perfect place because of a retrofit that you had no idea had <laughs> right. happened on that door. Yeah. Um, there's just no other way. It's just almost like divine. I say this as an agnostic person, mm -hmm. uh, but it does seem very much like divine intervention, especially when, in my case, it's again and again and again. And you just get good at pretending like that's what you meant to do, kind of like <laughs> Pee Wee Herman. I meant to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I've got I've gotten through life pretending that <laughs> something stupid that I did was actually what I meant to do. So <laughs> I am no stranger to luck. Now, I will say that some of those things I do think, I mean, some of them could be luck, some of them couldn't be. But there's one great story in the book where uh, you talk about, um, some. so sometimes you're brought in by the government um, to get into, let's say, a drug dealer's vault or something like that, where they, there may be tons of money in there, or drugs or, you know, all evidence or whatever. So you got the cops, you got the DEA, uh, you think you even had the DOD um, over your shoulder one time, and you're going into this, into this vault. Uh, and, you know, through some, I would say divine intervention, uh, you didn't realize that the door was booby-trapped. And had you opened the door, had you gotten in or had you done the wrong thing, you would have been blown to smithereens along with everyone else in the room. Now, to me, the fact that you didn't get blown up, now that's luck. But that may have been skill. Maybe you knew it was booby trap. But those are the types of things that I think are luck. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. That was actually a friend of mine in San Diego, Carl Cloud. May he rest in peace. Uh, had that happened. When that went down, he alerted his colleagues in the industry, hey, guys. Here's a warning, just be careful on interior doors where we normally use one type of attack, we call it a, a punching attack. Mm -hmm. If law enforcement is often in a hurry, it doesn't matter whether it's local cops or the DEA, it doesn't really matter what agency. When, then when there is a warrant being executed and you're there to break open a safe, they are in a hurry. And so we often use the most expeditious uh, methods that we can to gain entry quickly for right. law enforcement. On that particular day, Carl didn't go down the normal route that we would go down. And for some reason, he paused and had them search the perp who was in the backseat of the squad car right. for a key. And they got the key and opened it and found the bomb on the inside of the safe. Wow. Had Carl put a, a big punch and a hammer on the key lock and smacked it the bomb would have 
taking him out. So a lot of us, we changed our protocol overnight. We don't even pull the door open. We, we usually unlock it and get out of the way and let them pull it open. Yeah, that, that's an it because that's like one of you, I think you call it your third commandment. I don't know if you mentioned the other two, but that's the third one uh, where you basically, uh, I think you, you just, once things open, you have this great catchphrase. You nod and say, it's ready cock an eyebrow, and then you take a step back and then let whoever is paying you to open the safe, let them open it up, let them enjoy. Uh, do you ever, do you duck and cover every time someone opens a door or do you just take a step back? You know? It's more just averting your gaze. So you're not gawking at their personal items. You, know, you, you want to be indifferent to that. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be- Most w- of the time. Yeah. We don't even notice most of the time. The truth is uh, a pro safe cracker. He loves his job because of the challenge, you know, solving the Chinese puzzle and the feeling, you know, the quadruple dopamine hit we get when we turn the handle and swing the door open. We're not about what the contents are. Now, once in a while, the contents are so outrageous or out of the norm that they elicit a response from the people who are gaining access. Sometimes you're taken aback and you glance at the contents when that happens. Sometimes you wish you you hadn't. <laughs> you're you're only human, Dave. Um, yeah, you've got some great stories in your book about people finding some very very odd things, some incriminating things, uh, and some very awkward things inside of safes. So there it is. I mean, I can only imagine the different things that you've come across that didn't make it into the book. Uh, but no, that's it's very true. Um, and there's this other kind of. I think the the obvious question, and I know you've been asked this a million times, so I'm not going to ask the question uh, and and expect an answer from you. But obviously, you know, you mentioned earlier that there's kind of uh, you know there's there's a dearth of very good safe crackers in prison inside of you know the the underworld. You know, I imagine there's got to be people who do want good safe crackers. I know you've been asked if you would ever turn down the dark side, and I think it's obvious that you wouldn't. You seem like an upstanding guy. You will never become, uh, you know, uh, uh, an illegal safe cracker, a, a cat burglar, anything like that. But your colleagues, um, some of them have uh, given into the temptation of the dark side. One of my favorite stories from the book about one such individual uh, was Roy Saunders, who's a British safe cracker uh, who turned to the dark side, tried to get into a safe, uh, and it didn't. It, it didn't turn out very well, but it did end like a British comedy. So I think that there's some level of irony there. Can you tell me a little bit about that story because it's one of my favorites? Yeah, boy, that was a shockeroo for many years. Roy was the, among professional safe crackers, Roy was the the most high profile of us all. Um, he was traveling the world, demonstrating the virtues of high security safes. This is in the, in the 80s, uh, demonstrating the virtues of high security safes to executives from the insurance and jewelry worlds. Uh, he was an extremely accomplished safe cracker out of England. He'd been all over the world. And he was also an interesting guy to talk to. He was his upbringing was sort of hard scrabble, and because of that, he knew that he didn't have. Uh, how to put this politely, he wanted to increase his ability to hobnob with people of class, of high class. He wanted to do that, so he went to Butler School. And he, we were sitting at a bar and he was telling me this. I was just amazed. The story is so British already, by the way. This is like uniquely British <laughs> right now. Yeah. He went to school. for. He was, I don't think he ever was a butler, but he went to school just how to learn 
how to act like an upper crust individual. I just I thought that was fascinating. And uh, he approached everything in life like that. Well, I'm going to mix, uh, because I have no choice here, what we know with the, from the facts with a little bit of what we surmise reading between a lot of lines. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story here, Dave. Well, we, and we want the story to be true. Of course, or of course. As of course. close to true of as, as we can get it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But late in his career, um, no, this isn't fact. This is people surmising that Roy had a gambling debt that needed to be paid. Now we can switch back into facts. He and a, a gang got caught attempting to burgle Cartier downtown London. And they had picked the lock on the shoe store next door to Cartier's and gone into the shoe store. And then they knocked a hole in the wall and all the there was no uh, alarm on the wall. There was just a perimeter alarm on the doors. So they went into Cartier and then headed back to the safe. And Roy was going to have all night to work on it. What these guys didn't know is that there were the London secret police on the second floor of a building across the street <laughs> surveilling the business on the other side of the shoe store. That was their target. But right. they saw the business going down. Cartier called the Bobbies. Bobbies came in, made the arrests. <laughs> and all the members of the gang, including Roy Saunders, yeah. did four years in a basically a, what appeared to be a country club. Jail. <laughs> right. I mean, it is such a. I mean, it's such a great story. I mean, it's terrible that one of your own kind of turned. You know, turned. Yes, to the, it's terrible. Know. Yeah. He was a. He was on top of the mountain. Roy was the. He was the Muhammad Ali on top of the mountain back then, and his fall from grace was really horrible to watch. And from when he got out of prison, of course, none of the established safe companies in the UK would ever let him go out to a client's location and open or work on a safe ever again. So he was relegated to occasional jobs in safe and vault warehouses, opening safes that are going to be refurbished and then later sold. A terrible ending to an otherwise illustrious career. He was a, a very good safe crack. I mean, you put like a, a, you know, a stamp of, of reality on that because the story itself is very funny. But yeah, the fallout is, is terrible because, I mean, obviously everyone's reputation is on the line. And your, you know, your line of work requires the utmost uh, reputation. I mean, you have to be um, trustworthy. You've got to be reliable. Uh, you know, you got to, you know, sometimes keep your mouth shut with what you see as you, you know, some of the things you mentioned in the book right. where you had to, you know, you know, make some things disappear um, with the consent, obviously, of the owner of the safe. But there's a lot, you know, there, there's it's you need to be trusted. And if you, you know, if you break that trust, there, there's nothing left for you. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to bring this up. You know, I, I feel bad bringing this up, but you, you put it in your book. You know, you flirted with the dark side a few times early on in your lockpicking career. Uh, you know, you talk about you, you get, have a whole series of times where when you were a student, you know, you needed a couple answers. You used your lockpicking skills to maybe, you know, acquire those answers. Um, and you did this several times. Uh, this, you know, I don't think this is going to ruin your reputation now, but, um, I, I found this to be very interesting. This feels like someone, you know, when, when you have that power, you know, as a kid, especially sometimes it's very easy to misuse that. And I feel like this is what happened to you, or maybe, you know, you just wanted to get through school without Evan to, uh, you know, study. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. I'm just old enough now where I'm able to look back and analyze a life warts and all, 
and not pretend that there were no warts. Most of us have a few uh, things that we've engaged in in our youth that we're not proud of. And that's definitely one of mine. My lifelong friend, Rick Wise, and I spent our freshman year uh, at Western Washington University. It was actually Western Washington State College back then. It was that long ago. <laughs> and we were unprepared for the midterms. So what did we do? Well, we waited until the <laughs> building cleared out of most of the people. And I picked the lock on the professor's office. And we went in and got the test. Actually, we got the answer key that time. And we marked all the answers to the questions on our peaches mm -hmm. in code. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a B was a one and a, mm -hmm. or an A was a one and a B was a two, you know, the simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what we did. And we would drop the peaches at our floor and put our tests and look down at the peaches and get, we, well, we'd always get a couple wrong. You know, you didn't want to have a perfect test. Sure, sure. And a few times when we picked locks on professor's offices, we we didn't get the tests or the answer keys. Uh, they were essays. Mm. And then you're stuck because you're up all night writing essays. And then <laughs> mine can't be the same as Rick's. You can't turn in the same darn essay. Right, right, right. Uh, we did that. And I'm really lucky, again, pure luck, but lucky to have not gotten caught because my life would never have been this. I would never be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. Had I gotten caught in B&E as a kid? No. <laughs> B and E <laughs> breaking and entering for those who aren't familiar with the uh, with the terms uh, with the acronyms. You know, it, it's what I love about that story is it didn't just happen once because you talk about you got so comfortable that there was one point where you know two kind of the janitors would come by or other people in the office and they would see this door open and then you guys would just act like you were there. You would have conversations as if you were the TA, which is like so brilliant. <laughs> and there's just you know this, um, you know, the, it, it's it's bold. You know, that's that's. You know, and I love that. It's, it's such a great story. When I was in high school, um, there was this person. Uh, his name was I, I won't give away his name on here. I don't know if he's he's a fan or not. But he was, you know, he was kind of this lovable petty thief. You know, I don't know if he was like Alex Mundy on It Takes a Thief or not, but he was just kind of this lovable thief and he never really did anything. Like he would steal my wallet and then give it back to me. <laughs> you know, like that kind of a guy. He never took anything out of it. But it was, you know, I remember one time he, uh, for one- You see, the challenge was the thing. Right, right, yeah. It was the challenge. It wasn't to steal your money. He wanted to see if he could do it. Yeah, and then he taught me the technique on how he did it and it was brilliant. Like he would, like if my wallet was sticking out a little bit he would grab the tip of the wallet and then as I got up it just slipped out of my pocket and I didn't notice it you know uh but he was like my first introduction to kind of that playful um that playful rogue you know that that scamp but I remember you know in I think it was junior year um he broke into one of the um one of the closets there and got the test for one of the finals and you know there are several people in the class who used it and I remember thinking like wow this is crazy but he was that guy you know and I don't know if he became a safe cracker as a professional but it was just kind of that fun you know it, it's it's not, you know, when you say breaking and entering, it makes you think like you're, you know, stealing somebody's, you know, I, I know it's not good. Ethically, it's not good. But there's there's a line, you know, where it's like, you know, lovable mischief and then, you know, detrimental to your future livelihood. I guess there's, you know, there's yeah. Roy Sanders kind of fell into to the latter category. Um, but we, you know, we can't talk about safe cracking. I can't believe we've gotten this far into it without discussing both your tools, which I found fascinating, and the... um 
how do I want to say this? The, the safety features that safes put into place to kind of stop people like you from getting into the safe. I mean, obviously, if you're putting together a safe, people are paying thousands of dollars to keep their valuables secure. You're not supposed to get into this very easily. You know, I think we mentioned hard plates earlier. That's one of them. Um, you know, mousetrap retractors, I think, think is another one. There's several different types of hard plates. Um, you know, you've got several different types of drills, scopes. You got a whole, you know, a whole toolbox full of these things. So let's talk about some of the, you know, some of the things that you're using, some of the things you're going up against. But the first thing I got to ask you is, do you use a stethoscope, like a doctor's stethoscope, like they do in the cartoons? Or is that, you know, a thing from the 1940s? We use something much more powerful than a doctor's stethoscope. We have an electronic amplifier <laughs> with cool. a magnetic <laughs> transducer mic uh -huh. that will just stick right on. Most safes are made out of, of steel, of course. And the transducer mic will stick right to it. Um I've got a couple of different uh, speaker amp combos that also with magnetic uh, strips on the back, so you can stick them right on the safe as well. And what we've learned is that a stethoscope would be absolutely useless in many applications where there is concrete between you and the lock because it doesn't handle sound very well. Interesting. But you can put this transducer mic on a component that does have metal that goes all the way through the door. For example, the dial. The dial spindle goes through the door into the lock on the inside. So if you put the transducer mic on the dial somewhere or even on the handle, the sounds that we need to hear, basically the tumblers inside the lock, we can hear those even on a very thick door. Uh, much more powerful, 100 times more powerful than a, a stethoscope. And so just, just so I understand correctly, so what you, what exactly are you listening for? Are you, I mean, you're, you're, obviously the tumblers are clicking around, but there must be a very distinct sound that you're waiting for as something slides into place or, you know, I, I imagine that's it, something sliding into place, I guess. <laughs> that's the only option there, right? Well, uh, for those people who own a safe, most safes have locks in them that will exhibit what we call contact points. And if you just go up to your safe, if you're a listener today, go out to your safe right now and then take your dial, spin your wheels, say four times left to 50. Just turn the dial four times, stop at 50, and then come back to zero. Now, take that dial and turn it slowly and softly left and right and see if you don't feel little bumps, say around five or six on one side and say 13, 14, 15 on the other side. They can be at slightly different places depending on the age of the lock and the manufacturer. And those tiny little bumps that you feel that are called contact points, those are what we use to open a lock by manipulation. And we look for variations in those contact points. We look for those numbers where you feel those little bumps happening. We look for those numbers to change. And if you keep track of both of them, say a, a number around five and a number around 13, if you keep track of both of them, what you look for is for the span between them to decrease as you set different numbers and come back to the contact area. It really is a, a completely scientific approach to it. 
And so that's really the equivalent of someone putting their ear against the safe and then like turning the dial, like click, 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 click. And that's <laughs> obviously doesn't, it's not like you listen yes. to it for two seconds and then you pop the safe open like they do on TV, but that's the high tech version of what you're doing, uh, which is fascinating. I didn't know you guys had all of the, the listening equipment. That's really cool. So let's say you can't get the thing open. You know, let's say we got another um, bumblebee cannery situation where you can't do it by manipulation. You got to get into this some other way. Um, what are you doing next? We drill. And we drill as small a hole as possible. We Many of us use eighth-inch bits, which aren't much bigger than a spaghetti noodle. Sometimes we'll go down to even smaller when we can, but we'll drill a little tiny hole. And the advantage of a small hole is that it's easier to, to drill through hard plate than a big hole. You know, the littler hole that you're putting. Now, some hard plates are made out of bearing balls. And a little bitty bit can allow you to go in between the balls. Ah. You'll use pitcher balls resting against each each other. There are going to be gaps between those balls, even if they're touching. And you can get a little tiny drill bit in between those gaps. So we try to drill small. And we don't mess around with hard plates uh, using tungsten or, or titanium or cobalt. Uh, we use carbide bits, tungsten carbide bits, to get through most hard plates. And if a hard plate is super duper duper hard, we'll uh, use diamond bits. We try to minimize their use because they're rather expensive. Right. But they, they work extremely well. One of the questions that I had, and I don't remember if you address it in the book or not, but you go through depending. So a hard plate is, you know, kind of what it sounds like. It is a, it is a um, I imagine it is a, a piece of strange, you know, metal, like a meta material. Uh, sometimes it's a, a strong alloy, but it's these basically a plate that is in the way of where you would drill. Um, and that's a that's security right. measure. And they're made out of all kinds of, of wacky stuff, including, you know, ball bearings. I think one is you, it's called impervium is when you go through. And that's, you know, that's a, a patent on just how hard that that plate is. So that, that's what you're trying to get through. And what what's kind of interesting is going through the steel, you know, the basic steel, even the hardened steel seems to be pretty easy with your bits. But as you mentioned, you got diamond bits, diamond tip bits, you got carbide, titanium carbide bits. But a lot of times with these hard plates, you go through these bits, they get, you know, they, they get, they dull, they crack, they break. Um, obviously with the broken ones, you can't, you just, you just have to replace those. But with the, when, when you get a, you know, a bit that's dull, can you sharpen it? Can you reuse it? Because it seems like you go through, you know, tens of these with every single, you know, tough safe. Yeah. Well, there are hard plates that destroy bits. Uh, the Relsum, for example, that was in Prince's Vault, that destroys bits. You put a carbide bit against Relsum and put it in high speed, the bit will be toast in just a few seconds. Whoa. Uh, uh, other hard plates, uh, we put massive pressure on, and it'll cut slightly, and then we put it down and use a new bit, and those are just dull, and the dull bits we can resharpen. Okay. All right, so you're not going through like a million bits all at once. You're not you have to replace a whole set that's right. But if we do go through a bunch, we have a bunch. You know, you're, a professional safecracker goes on every job with hundreds of bits. And he's not going to get cut short. And one of the other things, so you have these bits, so that's one way to do it if it's a straightforward. But to get that drill point, it's actually fascinating because every safe is obviously different. Every lock is different. So you have to, in some ways, be a walking encyclopedia of what the interworkings of a safe look like so that you can measure out, 
you know, because you're you're obviously drilling for a reason, and it's to get into an open space or to you know to be able to manipulate the lock from the inside. That's really what the drill hole is for, I believe. So you have to know where to go, mm-hmm. and sometimes these are extraordinarily precise because there's sometimes there's like booby traps. I think I mentioned the uh, mouse trap or tractor. I don't know if that's exactly what it's called, but I know there was one where you had like you know, a small gap you had to get through. Otherwise you would trigger the anti-locking mechanism, which would require you to blow a hole in the door. So you got to do, you got to be precise, Dave. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Um, but how do you find those points and how do you make sure that they're accurate? Well, what you get down after a little bit of time in the business is how important it is to have very precise measurements for every possible target in that door, in that safe door or vault. And we call those drill points, and they are the, we can't be without them. Uh, we, the, the common drill points most safe crackers have committed to memory, uh, but all of us have extensive databases. Uh, there are many times where we don't have the memory, and we have to consult our database for very precise information. That's great. There was even one interesting, you had one, um, I think it was an older safe, maybe an antique safe, and you it was locked and you had to get in, but the, the mechanism was, I don't know if it was custom or it was very unique, and you were able to crack it, not with your encyclopedic knowledge, which I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I think you got quite a few up that were still rattling around in that brain of yours. I think you can get into most safes that way. But with the weird ones, you had to have a picture. And luckily, someone had taken a picture of the inside of the vault and was able to send it to you, which to me, I guess on the surface, if someone hears that, it's like, oh, that's perfect. You got everything you need there. But when you're looking for very precise points and the picture's not necessarily to scale or maybe it's at an angle or maybe the camera lens distorts, these are all things that I've got to worry about doing the things that I do. I know how a picture can be distorted very easily. If you're looking for those very precise points, how do you take a picture which could be slightly different than reality and make sure you're getting everything accurate? Boy, that is a great question. Uh, we deal with parallax and other forms of vis- of illusions um, as best we can. You have to just be aware of it. That when you see the inside photograph of a safe or a vault, the first thing you've got to look for is a known measurement. There has to be something in there that you know the distance between or the measurement of, and you can use that to extrapolate to other places on the safe or the vault. Now, the one that you're talking about, well, that was a nightmare scenario. It was a an antique bank vault, a full automatic bank vault. No dials, no bolt control handle, nothing, just a blank front. Uh, that particular one was in Salt Lake City. And I, again, here I am, Tom Brady, the luckiest guy ever. Uh, I don't have greatest guy ever. <laughs> you got more than luck. He's more than great. He's practice. Practice makes perfect. He's yeah, not lucky. Well, but yes, anyway, go on. <laughs> go on. Well, he's, he's both. He, he is the greatest quarterback in NFL history, and he's also one of the luckiest ones. You l- look at all of the things that had to go down. Would you look at the highlight reel for that Super Bowl with Atlanta? I mean, it's amazing the number of miraculous catches, throws, what have you, that had to happen for them to win. Anyway, back to uh, Salt Lake City. (laughs) I wasn't sure where exactly I needed to drill. And I was puzzled. I had been there for several hours. And I got a call out of the blue. By the way, this is the only time. I have a very long history with Diebold Incorporated. I've been doing uh, subcontracting for them for more than 40 years. Only once 
has a regional rep for a banking chain ever called me on site one time. And it was the one time I really needed him to because this guy, Hank Taggart, had taken a photograph of the inside, the backside of that Baltimore. And he just called to check on me to see how the job was going. He said, hey, Dave, how's it going? Said, well, Hank, it's not going so great. I'm struggling with this fault. Hank says, well, would you like an inside photo? Well, my jaw hit the ground. What do you mean an inside? You have you have a photo of the other side of this vault, the part I need to right. see? Yeah. It was, yeah, I, I, so I was there a few weeks ago, Dave, and, and that was such a beautiful old vault. I was just taken with it, so I took photos of the outside and the inside. Well, I was like, oh, my God, you may have just saved the day, and he did. He texted me the photo, and there it was, everything that I needed to see. Of course, then I had to sit down and very carefully measure out things on his photo to figure out where to drill. That took more than an hour just to figure out where to put the hole. And the bummer was the hole came out exactly where I needed it to. It accomplished nothing. <laughs> the, the, the problem, the, the most likely problem wasn't it. It was one of the least likely things to have gone wrong that was plaguing that door. Wow. And we threw a Hail Mary at the end of that day and I was the last guy on the airplane getting home. <laughs> and the thing I should mention is what made this particular situation so unique is not necessarily that you needed the photograph, but that the photograph would even be useful at all because those particular antique safes, they had um, basically, I guess, glass or whatever it was, a clear covering. I'm assuming it's glass. They're old enough. Uh, basically showing all of the inner workings of the safe because they were so proud of how beautiful and how intricate everything was. And that's obviously that went out the window because you don't want people knowing how to get into your safe. Uh, so that was one of the rare times where it was old enough that people still did that and still were showing off, uh, you know, the beautiful machinery and that's what you needed. Um, so that's, that's another little, that, that is actually a little piece of luck there. Um, but you still, you're right. I, I had actually forgotten gotten that you're right a uh, hundred years ago and further back uh, it was quite common for vault makers to use a glass panel on the back of their door because they were very proud these were intricate mechanisms no one makes a vault like that today and consequently we don't see any glass panels on the back of modern bank vaults because they're not nearly as uh, cool to look at <laughs> as the old ones were yeah it's true yeah and had that been a newer vault Hank's photo would have shown me nothing, but since it was a super old vault made in the 1880s, uh, I could see through the glass panel and everything I needed was right there. I, it was amazing. And the other thing, you know, before we close up shop here, you know, one of the things that I want to mention that I think kind of was a surprise to me is that when you drill these safes, um, no matter how antique they are, no matter what it is, you can actually repair them. So in some ways they're better than how they were originally. I found that to be kind of shocking because once you put a hole into something, I mean, how do you fix that in, you know, once you've breached security, how do you make it even more secure than before? But you do, and you, you do this routinely, uh, which I just found amazing. Yeah, we have a variety of ways. Uh, the most common is to use a steel epoxy and bearing balls. Mm -hmm. So you put some steel epoxy in the hole, roll a, a rather tight-fitting ball in the hole, tap it all the way down, uh, put some more epoxy, another ball, some more epoxy, another ball. Or we'll use hardened tapered pins. Tapered pins are 
they're angled and you can pound them in a hole and they get tighter the deeper you pound them. Some of those have hardened centers or relsum centers. Carbide included centers is the more appropriate term. But there are a variety of ways. Some guys will take a safer bolt and weld it and use hard facing rod. There's all kinds of ways. Our job is to make it as difficult or more difficult to get into than it was before we started. And we finish off the repair by trying to make it invisible. We would prefer that no one even know where we drilled. So we, we have tricks that we use to try to disguise the entry point. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I had no idea. Um, and, and I love that. Um, now, I don't know if you have, do you have a couple minutes to talk about breaking into Prince's vault? Because that, you know, I don't want to say it's a highlight of your career because so many other things were much more impressive, but it's definitely one of the most interesting stories. So if, do you have a second to do a little bonus episode on that? Sure, you bet. Perfect. So we'll get to that. But in the meantime, you know, if you want to listen to some of these stories, the book is called Safecracker, A Chronicle of the Coolest Job in the World. Now, I got to tell you, Dave, that is a much more catchy title than what the first book on safecracking, which I believe was called The Greatest Burglary on Record, Robbery of the Northampton National Bank, The Cashier Overpowered at Midnight, Tortured and Forced to Give Combinations to the Vault and Safe, $800,000 in Money and Bonds Stolen, $25,000 Reward. Uh, that is the long, might be the long longest title in history. Yours is much, I, I, I think you took a page out of, out of their book, or at least you, you took the, the lesson there and you made yours nice and pithy and easy to remember. Uh, so first of all, how can people get a hold of that book and how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in safe cracking or just want to chat about what you saw in Prince's Vault? Well, I don't have much of a social media presence. Uh, I can be emailed at davemccombie.com. Uh, Dave McComey at Mac.com or Dave McComey at me.com. Um, I'm on Twitter once in a while, fighting the culture wars, having a little fun sparring with people on the left. It's always fun. <laughs> I love the culture wars. Twitter's the place to do that. You got to be careful. <laughs> Twitter's a dangerous place. Yeah, you, you need to take constant breaks, though, or you'll lose your mind. And the book can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Basically, all the bookstores are stocking it now, which is good. Perfect. I will have links to that. I'll have links to your Twitter feed uh, and and all of your stuff. I'm going to put up, you know, uh, the I'm going to find that video. You'll send it to me. I'll put up the video of you rocking out with uh, Leon Smith. I'll make sure we have that up there as well. Um, and maybe I'll even find the news report of you getting uh, getting. Uh, getting trashed over that bumblebee cannery thing uh, because those are just fun <laughs> stories. But I want to thank sure. you. This has been absolutely incredible. I think in some ways I'm not as good of a safe cracker as you, Dave, but I feel like I've cracked into your life and cracked into your history. And I think I've found some interesting nuggets there, some diamonds, if you will say. So I, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity and thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a blast. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, never fear. 
We got you covered. You can go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can find every place you can locate us and find one that fits your lifestyle. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go because it is also there that you can find the show on YouTube. Yes, we have a live video version of the podcast now on YouTube. YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn is where you find it. And that is not the only place where you can find the show on social media. We got links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and of course, Instagram right there. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.